Welcome to Over the Hill. My name is Darren Espinoza, and I'm a guest interviewer for this week's episode. Today, I'm honored to be joined by a very special guest, Taylor Griffin. For those who don't have the pleasure of knowing Taylor, she was the former press secretary for Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi and is now a communications manager on the global affairs team at Spotify in New York. So Taylor, obviously you and I met um, in the fall of freshman year during uh, an Ignatius seminar on race, color, and culture, and those are such great times, but um, I was hoping we can start the podcast with you telling listeners a bit about yourself and your Georgetown experience. Certainly. Hi, friends. So great to be with you, um, and hello to our wonderful class. Um, I uh, was a government major uh, and minored in French uh, and African-American studies um, when I was at Georgetown uh, and was involved in several um, different extracurricular activities, including several musical groups, uh, REL, acapella group, gospel choir. Um, my goodness, what else did I do? Uh, very involved in the Patrick Healy Fellowship uh, for three of my four years at Georgetown. Um, a few years in the NAACP as well. Um, and yeah, that, that's kind of a little bit about me and my, my time at Georgetown in short. Yeah, I know, needless to say, you were a very busy, busy person on the Hill. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like if, from what I know about, you know, from what I know about you, you always, you know, you have spent time on Capitol Hill and, and in a few different roles. So I was just hoping that you could speak to the transition from the hilltop to Capitol Hill, the various roles you held there. Absolutely, yeah. So, one of the um, incredible benefits that that we had having gone to to Georgetown was access to Capitol Hill, um, and not just in proximity, but also access to the incredible uh, alumni network. Um, Many of our alums have gone to, you know, work on Capitol Hill. And so uh, during my time at Georgetown, I took advantage of that. And uh, being from the San Francisco Bay Area, um, I decided to try my uh, best at a, getting securing the internship uh, with one of the congressional uh, representatives from, from the Bay Area and ended up uh, landing an internship with uh, then House Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi, my summer after my sophomore year, um, spent my time interning for her that summer, loved it so much as a complete Georgetown nerd would, um, that I asked if I could intern again the following summer and uh, took advantage of what was then called the Augusta Summer Fellowship uh, Program, which enabled me to spend the following summer uh, in DC and interning uh, on the Hill, um, where I just continue to fall in love with the world of politics, particularly congressional politics, uh, and particularly uh, political communications. Um, and so I spent the rest of my senior year uh, relying upon the wonderful alumni network uh, that Georgetown provides, um, particularly the Patrick Healy Fellowship uh, alums and um, utilize them and as they helped me connect with folks on the hill and kind of figure out how I would weasel my way up there after graduating. Um, 
And sure enough, I, I did, I did indeed graduate without a job. And that's very important that I secured the diploma, but did not secure the bag yet um, for the small coin purse that is known as entry level positions on Capitol Hill. Um, uh, but graduated without a job, moved home for two weeks, was applying to a variety of different Hill offices. And it just so happened that a press assistant position opened up in the speaker's press office uh, where I had interned the summer previously. Um, had the interview one day, got the job offer the next day and started the day after, after moving back to DC. So it moved quickly and there, there began my, uh, my Hill career after, after Georgetown. Um, and, spent my first two and a half years really grinding doing the the grunt work of being a, a press assistant uh in the leadership office um and shout out to the entry-level positions on the hill because they are some of the most challenging positions just given the sheer volume of the tedious work that you have to do and so i have such a great appreciation for uh, any entry-level staffer knowing how hard they have to work um, and from there, after my two and a half years, I uh, moved up to be deputy press secretary for the speaker. And then uh, six months later, um, at age 25, became uh, press secretary to then House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi and spent uh, a little over three years serving as um, her press secretary and uh, then transitioned into the speakership after the House Democrats won uh, the 2018 uh, elections. And so um, that's a little bit about how I, I got to, to where I was um, uh, on Capitol Hill. That's amazing. I mean, I do want to just pause and just kind of like give you the, give you the kudos and the praise that you deserve. So as you mentioned, you know, at the age of 25, you were the first black woman to serve as press secretary for the Speaker of the House. And we're one of the youngest to hold that position. And obviously Nancy, Nancy Pelosi herself was, is the only woman in history to become the Speaker of the House and is the highest ranking female elected official in US history. So very, very you know, amazing accomplishment. I, when I found that out, I was, I was you know, I, I know we hadn't, hadn't stayed in close contact, but I was like so proud and, and impressed with you. And I was like, yes, rooting for Taylor always. And you know, that's, that's, that's amazing. So I'm well, very proud you. of you. Thank you. Couldn't have done it without my incredible Georgetown family behind me. So much appreciated. Yeah. I was hoping you could kind of share um, what was you know, like your biggest lesson learned. I'm sure there were many during your time on the Hill, or if there was a favorite memory with the Speaker of the House, Madam Secretary Pelosi. Certainly, you know, um, gosh, so many life lessons from from Capitol Hill and from, from the world of politics. Um, but, you know, I think uh, one thing that I really, really, uh, you know, was really kind of hammered into me was the importance of, of staying grounded by finding purpose in the work uh, that you do and the life that you lead. Um, Capitol Hill can be a very, um, exhausting uh, place. Um, uh, tendencies, of course, to be a little cutthroat as well, um, uh, just given the nature of, of politics these days. Um, but it was important that I reminded myself that every single time I walked into the Capitol building, which was where my office was on the first floor, that I reminded myself why I was walking into this space uh, and the reasons I was walking into this space. Um, 
and that was to advocate for the most marginalized in our communities, both the communities that I represent and the communities um, that I don't represent, but that uh, I care about um, because they too are are struggling in a variety of different ways. And so for me, um, staying grounded in, in my purpose for being there, I think was probably the biggest life lessons. Um, so many memories uh, on Capitol Hill. Um, you know, I think some of my uh, favorite memories were uh, those more quiet times with the speaker. Um, I spent my maybe Monday through Thursday in Washington, D.C., and then Fridays through Sundays, sometimes Mondays, uh, traveling uh, the country and actually the, the world with the speaker. And so uh, we spent a whole lot of time together. I spent more time with her than I have my uh, roommate and friends in DC. So thanks to them for being so gracious and understanding the demands of my job. Um, uh, just one memory that I have is the speaker uh, loves chocolate uh, and particularly chocolate ice cream. Um, and sometimes that's what she wants for breakfast. And I remember one time in particular, we were in Florida and we had just done an interview with one of the local newspapers um, down there in South Florida. And she hadn't eaten breakfast and she was hungry. And, you know, I had asked her what she was interested in eating. And her answer was uh, chocolate ice cream. So we pulled over. <laughs> uh in our in our security cars um to a gelato store and um got her a chocolate ice cream uh in the morning um <laughs> so you know it's just reminds every it was you know reminds everyone that you know as as accomplished and as successful as these people are they're regular human beings just like us um of course, a lot of my other favorite and most cherishing memories are the memories I, I uh, spent with, with Congressman John Lewis, the late Congressman John Lewis. Um, most recently, uh, the last time he crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge, uh, early March, uh, I was with him and, and walked him from uh, his car to, to meet the other marchers um and uh you know i had known he was sick and we were all very special you know very uh grateful to be with him in this special moment but uh, i didn't know it was going to be his last time and so uh that's a moment that i will certainly always always cherish oh that's that's amazing i'm glad you touched on that because i was hoping to segue um you know, as somebody who I know you attended the Black Lives Matter protests in Ferguson back in 2014 and someone I definitely consider to be a young but a seasoned activist at that, how do you think the Black Lives Matter movement has changed the political and cultural landscape of the country? It's like the ways in which politicians address anti-Black racism and violence or even the visibility and the role of young people? Absolutely. You know, uh, it's quite remarkable to reflect upon the changes uh, that the country has undergone um, in the last six years since kind of, you know, what we would deem kind of the real, you know, obviously Trayvon was the spark in 2012, but kind of the real fire began after the August 9th murder of Mike Brown in, in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and, you know, uh, back then when we, when we started hitting the streets in, in 2014, um, 
you know, it was back when people thought all lives matter was the, you know, appropriate term to use. And, you know, there was a lot of kind of misunderstanding around what we were crying out for. And we were literally, I thought our demand was quite simple. We were asking you to stop killing us. Um, but apparently that was controversial because of course it has to deal with black people and anything that has to deal with black people is end up ends up being deemed uh controversial here in these united states um and so you know but it was it was an issue that for me it wasn't a political issue this was literally an issue of life and death uh for me for um my three brothers uh who are black for um, my dad for the community that I serve and the community that I represent and so um, you know this wasn't a polit political issue and it still is not a political issue this is literally an issue of, of human rights um, and you know that's what we spent so many years trying to underscore and it's incredible that now you know back when the movement was unpopular from the beginning, now we have seen the shift in the tide uh, uh, due to the remarkable, remarkable work that organizers in every city around the country have done to really change the hearts and minds uh, of Americans, but not just Americans as we're seeing this year, the movement has really, really been globalized. We have seen protests in Paris nonstop. We have seen protests in Brazil, uh, you know, you name the country and there's likely been some sort of action, particularly if that that country has a has a significant black population. And so, um, you know, it's really just a testament to the relentlessness of the activists, but also to the um, what I would deem uh, kind of the structure of the mo movement, you know, a lot of people uh, initially criticized the movement because it didn't have one quote-unquote leader, you know, directly comparing it to uh, the civil rights movement, um, which, you know, incorrectly just, you know, had, you know, framed Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as the leader, right? But actually that movement had plenty of leaders in a variety of different spaces, um, but history kind of captured it as just Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who in his own right deserves all the praise and accolades. Yet, you know, when we talk about it, it's important to be mindful that there are, were a variety of different leaders, uh, you know, Ella Baker, Fannie Lou Hamer, Bayard Rustin, just to name a few. Um, and, you know, that was one of the early criticisms, um, but I think it was actually a strength of the movement for Black Lives is that it's not leaderless, it's leaderful. It is a decentralized movement which has allowed uh, organizations and activists around the country to really localize their fight, right? You know, each city has different ordinances, different laws, different legislations, each region, each state does as well. And so I think, you know, when you're able to have a mass movement that is uh, localized, you're able to affect change at the local level more efficiently. That doesn't mean there aren't broad demands and broad principles that are applied um, across the country for the movement, but it enables uh, folks to really get the work done. And so um, it's really a testament to those who have been in the streets that have been in the living rooms of, of, of homes and strategizing on, on plans, have been working on the outside mobilization and the inside maneuvering in the halls of, you know, the mayor's office to to Congress. Um, and so it, it's really remarkable that we've seen such an incredible uh, shift uh, uh, with many thanks to to the young uh, black folks in this country. 
Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think, you know, even though we're in such a dark time with, with the COVID-19 crisis, I think this does give me, and I'm sure a lot of others, optimism. And, you know, even though these conversations may be uncomfortable or may not feel, you know, um, I guess comfortable is the right word, but it, I'm trying to think of a better word to describe it. I'm just glad these conversations are happening in, in general and that we don't, you know, that we are diversifying our exposure to different like thinkers in ways, you know, people of different lifestyles and, and just really trying to build up that empathy because um, the conversations start at such a local micro level and, and that can that's how we can affect change. So um, I'm really glad that um, to see this um, take the center stage because it's long overdue. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, I was hoping to kind of get into now your hope for the Black Lives Matter movement moving forward. I don't know if you're planning on being at the March on Washington in August or, um, you know, what what's your future and, and your, ask, your hope for the movement? Absolutely. Well, I think the movement has and continues to do a remarkable job at changing those hearts and minds. Uh, there are still a few more hearts and minds to change, um, but, you know, it helps that the movement has become mainstream, you know. Um, it's remarkable going to a protest now here in DC and you see people from all walks of life. You know, I was at one protest and it felt as if, you know, 40 to 50% of the people who showed up were white folks. And let me tell you, that was not the case back in the streets of DC in 2014. And so I think um, there's such incredible, uh, such incredible shift there that is so visibly present as well, um, which is a great sign. You know, I really hope that um, that we continue changing some of the legislation at the state level. Um, you know, there are a whole host of laws in all of our 50 states that are anti-Black um, and that uh, promote the extrajudicial killing uh, of Black folks uh, in this country. Um, and so I really hope we continue tackling uh, the state legislation processes. Um, uh, as you may have recently seen, uh, several weeks ago, the House Democrats um, passed the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was unveiled uh, several weeks after uh, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, and that is a significant, significant piece of legislation that bans chokeholds, bans no-knock war warrants, um, uh, and has a number of other really essential pieces. I would love to see something like that uh, as far as that its significance take place um, as well uh, at the state level. But, you know, um, the, black, the, the movement for Black Lives is broad, right? It isn't just about asking them to stop killing us, right? It's asking them to stop putting our folks in jail. It's asking them to stop deporting us, right? Um, and the movement is intersectional, right? You know, uh, I like to remind people that uh, oppression is intersectional. So you're not free until I'm free and I'm not free until you're free. And so really encompassing the variety of um, uh, structures of oppression and targeting those, I think, um, is really, really essential and an essential next step. So much of the work has been done in the movement um, to rid the movement of those structures of oppression. And I would love to see, you know, uh, the movement tackle, you know, whether it's um, laws against uh, that harm the transgender community, the LGBTQIA plus community, um, the native community, you know, go down the list of 
uh, of oppressed groups. I would really love us to kind of uh, continue to build those broad coalitions and use that power to uh, knock down structures of oppression wherever we see it. Absolutely. I, I do think too, as you mentioned, in addition to the legislation and you know, showing up to protests, making sure you're, you know, you're being mindful of how you're spending your money, who you're voting for, um, signing petitions, you name it. I also think one thing that I've learned is continuing to increase my exposure to diverse, especially black, black leaders, black activists. And I was hoping you could share with us, you know, if there are any black activists, creators or writers that you would recommend listeners follow, because, you know, as we, as we well know, Georgetown is a predominantly white institution. And I think sometimes you can just get so like in a homogenous group that you don't think to diversify your exposure and your experiences. And I think that's such a crucial step in, in changing that, changing any kind of discriminatory mindset you may have in your daily, daily life. Absolutely. Well, I'll start with my favorite author, uh, James Baldwin. So not a contemporary author, but um, his work just resonates no matter what decade you read it in. Um, and I think uh, the way that he was able to describe the Black experience um, and the experience of oppressed peoples here uh, in America in such a way that was so vivid um, and so so personal yet objective at the same time um, it's really, his work is really just unparalleled. And so, you know, I always uh, revisit his work. Um, I have so many of his books, including a St. James Baldwin candle on my bookshelf that I'm staring at right now. Um, <laughs> so I have to plug my boy, Jimmy, first and foremost. <laughs> um, but some more of the contemporary writers. Um, I love Clint Smith. Uh, he's a remarkable, remarkable writer and poet um, who I guess is just now signing with the uh, Atlantic and will be brought on as a staff writer. He's a really, really brilliant um, mind. Um, you know, just as far as, as content, um, I love the podcast Still Processing, um, which is hosted by two New York Times culture writers, Jenna Wortham and Wesley Morris. I think they just do a really good job of kind of uh, framing the cultural moment that we're in uh, in kind of a digestible, entertaining way. Um, my goodness, so many folks out there. Um, in the visual arts, um, my dear friend Reggie Black, uh, who is a DC native, has some really powerful, remarkable uh, multimedia uh, art pieces that I think um, uh, you know, always resonate with the times. Um, and so he always gives me hope in, in his, in his creativity. Um, goodness, who else? There's so, so many. I'll have to, we'll have to do some show notes and I'll throw some uh, additional resources there. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. There's, the list goes on and on. And I, of feel course, like you know, it, it can never stop. You know, you can, you can never have enough, you know, exposure and experience. Absolutely. Um, Okay. Well, I did want to, you know, as, as you know, we're both, you know, fellow Californians here and we're now going to be New Yorkers. Um, I wanted to know, how do you stay connected to your family and roots in San Francisco and kind of navigate that bi-coastal lifestyle, especially in, a, in a, um, this COVID world we're in now? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, um, so kind of 
minus the fact that I had no life when I worked for the speaker, uh, one of the small perks was that I did go get to go back to San Francisco once a month with her for work and was always able to squeeze in uh, a lunch or a happy hour with my family and friends. Um, and so that was actually a really important way for me to stay connected to them for those three and a half years that I was extensively traveling. Um, uh, again, a small privilege uh, of the work. Um, and now everything is over the screen. Um, you know, I do find it really important to stay connected to my friends back home uh, and family uh, since I've been gone from them for 10 years, which is terrifying to say. Um, I have very active group chats with, with my California friends, uh, as well as my uh, family group chat is always popping. Um, don't you worry, we have a separate one for the siblings because <laughs> how it is. Um, but you know, I think it's really important to, to maintain those connections, um, particularly with, with my friends, because um, that means a little bit more, more effort. Um, and so that we're sharing each other's successes, you know, um, but also sharing when each other, uh, are, you know, might be struggling and not doing well, right? Um, and it helps that we're just a FaceTime away. Um, we do regular Zoom calls, do ha virtual happy hours when our schedules align. So there are a variety of different ways we try uh, to stay connected during this time. Uh, some of them are in a book club with me. So we're finding, trying to find uh, creative ways to remain connected, um, as difficult as it is with, with the world being shut down. Um, so, so yeah, lot, lots of FaceTime calls, lots of group texts. Yeah, and I know, and I, I hope they're keeping you know up to date on the latest Bay Area music because I feel like it's such a such an amazing you know iconic. I, it's iconic. It's <laughs> you iconic. know, like, literally, your region could never. It's its own, <laughs> it's its own entire genre. You know, um, big shout fan. out to the hyphy movement. I, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, great. So I wanted to also talk about your transition to Spotify. It's such an exciting new role for you. Um, how did you decide to make that that transition and what are you most excited for in that in that role for you? Absolutely. Um, you know, after really having grown up in the speaker's office, um, I realized that privileged, I, I say, uh, that I had kind of done everything I had ever dreamed I wanted to do in the speaker's office. I actually didn't think I would make it past maybe two years on Capitol Hill, and here I am six years later and two summer internships, uh, and went from being an intern to uh, press secretary to the Speaker of the House. And so with that came so many remarkable opportunities, um, personally and professionally, uh, to really expand my craft, um, but also to see the country and see the world and connect with people from all different walks of life um, and work on some really, really critical issues, uh, helping the communities that I care about. Um, and I kind of realized uh, that I, you know, was reflecting on everything I had wanted to do. And I realized that I kind of had checked every single box. And in order for me to keep growing professionally, that would require a transition. And so, um, so that's how I ended up uh, now being a Spotify band member, as we call uh, ourselves, um, where I am 
still doing communications uh, on their global affairs team. Uh, so all things related to legal uh, government relations, uh, trust and safety, you name it. Um, and, you know, I'm really looking forward to, you know, I'm only about a month in, uh, but I um, am really looking forward to doing a deep dive on um, uh, on issues that are important to um, avid music listeners, uh, myself being one. And so it is, you know, it is a really, really uh, cool opportunity for me to kind of um, merge my love with uh, my love of music, um, having grown up in a musical family. And, you know, I'm usually at a concert every month, um, but here we are um, being quarantined. Um, but, you know, really blending my love of music with uh, politics and tech in this kind of sweet spot public affairs uh, position. And so I'm super grateful. I, I love all of my coworkers and I love that I get to work on something that is bringing together community. It's building community and bridging cultures to the power of, of audio now that we also do do podcasting. And so, um, and so it's been a real treat for me to, to be uh, at Spotify and uh, continue to learn and grow. That's incredible. Onward and upward for Taylor Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you. That sounds amazing. Thank you. Um, were you able to take some time off between jobs? And like, if so, how did you spend your time? How did you, you know, maintain your peace and your sanity? So um, I didn't really. I took a week and a half off. Um, which is terrible, but for anyone who knows me, it's very on brand. Um, you know, I was so, I'm so used to working 24 seven and I was working uh, every day during the pandemic, I had been going into the Capitol building. I was one of three uh, staffers usually uh, in with the speaker every day from beginning of the pandemic and March through the last day that I left. And so um, that's the pace I'm usually used to working at, which is 24 seven, always on call nonstop. And so I actually was worried that I wasn't going to know what to do with myself if I took any more time off. <laughs> so I was like, well, week and a half, and then I'm going to start. Um, but with that week and a half, what did I do? I spent the first three days waking up and frantically looking for my work cell phone, um, which I no longer had. So um, that was a shock because I was used to waking up and checking for text messages and emails from my boss, my supervisor, whomever about the latest, you know, craziness that's come out of the White House. Um, sorry for being partisan. Um, <laughs> It is what it is. Um, uh, but I actually was able to use the time to to catch up on my personal life and, and touch base with friends that I hadn't been able to connect to due to the demands of my job. Um, and, you know, despite DC being shut down, you know, go on walks in the neighborhood, catch up on the absurd amount of books that I have that I have not read, um, and really kind of use the time to to reset, um, but also to to reflect on my time on the Hill. And I'm actually, you know, still reflecting, and I'm sure I'll be reflecting for several months to come, but, you know, so much happened in those six years, but because of the 24-7 on-the-go always running around nature. I didn't really ever have time to reflect on some of the remarkable 
pieces of history that I was a part of. Um, you know, right after we finished impeachment, we were hit with this global pandemic. And so <laughs> I didn't even get to sit and process that I was, you know, a part of the impeachment proceedings and, you know, orchestrated and executed the march of the impeachment managers um, from the House side to the Senate side. And uh, some of the really cool moments um, that I never had time to really uh, sit and think about, um, I, I tried to do. And I still still am doing it. And I'm sure if we talk in December, I will have more and more stories for you that I've reflected upon. But, but that's what I did during my <laughs> week and a half off. <laughs> It sounds like you could have written your own book. I mean, I'm I would be I would be the first buyer of that book. So um, definitely keep me posted if that material. I got you, my friend. I got you. Um, cool. I mean, as we close the podcast, I did have a few more like you know fun rapid questions that I wanted to ask. Um, just two or three. Um, first one, sure. you know, as you're as you're getting ready to depart DC for New York, I wanted to know what you know one thing about DC it could be a restaurant a, a dish a place in the city that you're really going to miss when you go to the big apple i think i will miss the drum circles at malcolm x park the most i mean you know, now that you're at spotify i have to ask you know what's your what's your favorite podcast i know you mentioned one earlier yes <laughs> Oh my gosh. So in addition to still processing, which I mentioned earlier, um, I've really gotten into this podcast. Uh, it's a Spotify podcast called Dissect. Um, and it breaks down track by track some of our favorite albums. And so uh, it did Kendrick Mars. Damn, I'm currently listening to uh, their breakdown of Beyonce's Lemonade. And they've done several others, but it brings such a unique whole like wholesome perspective um, uh, of some of those albums taking in, you know, the cultural moments, the scene, the political landscape. Um, and so I've been a big, big fan uh, of that one uh, as of late. And uh, Spotify just launched their history of The Office, the TV show, um, which is hosted by Kevin. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I just started that. And then, of course, uh, looking forward to Michelle Obama's uh, new podcast uh, that just launched as well. I'm super excited about especially those latter two. Oh. I mean, I, that's amazing. I, I can't wait. <laughs> so exciting. <laughs> and I know you're, you're a music lover. So are there any new artists or albums that dropped in 2020 that you were, you know, you couldn't, couldn't stop listening to, or would you recommend to, to listeners? You know, um, so it didn't drop in 2020, but it dropped at the end of 2019. So I'm going to count it as 2020 because I needed it in 2020 due to how miserable this year has been. Um, Kay Trinata is one of my favorite uh, artists, uh, a little quirky black boy from Canada, um, uh, who's an incredible uh, beats maker, producer. Um, uh, and he dropped his second album, Bubba, uh, be, I think it was halfway through December uh, of last year. And I'm a huge K Trinata fan and have been waiting for this forever. Um, and so I've just had him on repeat. Um, and I have several close friends who are big K Trinata fans, uh, including Gabby Perla, class of 2014. Shout out. We were just talking about the album uh, a few days ago when we caught up. Um, so God bless Kate Janata for blessing us with that album, but that has really gotten me through this year. Amazing. I know, I know for me, I'm, I know I didn't ask myself, but I, I cannot. <laughs> I'm asking you. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot stop listening. Have you listened to Chloe and Hallie's new album? Oh, Flames. 
from start to finish. I, I was, okay. I had, I had never heard of them up until probably last year or this, this current so year, good. but you know, their whole entire discography is amazing. Oh, incredible. Shout out. And Shout the visuals. Out. And the visuals. Oh, <laughs> iconic. Okay. So as this is my final question, you know, as we close out the podcast, I wanted to ask if you had any final words or thoughts, you know, to leave our fellow Hoyas or anyone else who may be listening. I guess I just want to share uh, what an honor and a privilege uh, it is to be a part of the class of 2014. Um, for those who I was close friends with uh, during the four years and for those that I've grown in friendship with since graduating, it has been such a special honor to, to be uh, your classmate. Um, and I think one of the great things about being in our classes, we still find ways to be connected and I'm still meeting classmates that I never even cross paths with now and, and we're connecting. Um, and so I just, just offer that um, to also say, you know, uh, would love to, to reconnect with, with our classmates and, and meet those that I didn't cross paths with as well as we share such a common and special bond. And uh, if you ever find yourself in New York, holla at your girl. Uh, once the world reopens, I'd be happy to take you on a tour of our Spotify offices. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to take you up on that offer. And I'm a <laughs> yeah, right. we're, we're already friends, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Taylor. As I mentioned earlier, when I found out that they were doing this podcast you were like the first person that came to my mind and I, I messaged roll and I was like you know I don't know if you know Taylor but I think she is the perfect candidate for this kind oh. of interview and you so know, I'm sweet. so glad hopefully the others will be able to hear your story and and hopefully connect with you afterward and yeah I really want to thank you for joining the podcast and with that we'll close